Hi, it's Eric Nuttall from Sprout Asset. Uh, we thought it would be timely to give a quick review of uh, our take on what's been happening in the oil uh, market given the what feels like day-to-day-to-day-to-day uh, selling in, in the space. Uh, truly, sentiment is as worst as we can remember. It seems like bad news is bad news and good news is, is bad news. And you know, one example was this morning, uh, you wake up to the headlines about Saudi and several other countries severing their diplomatic ties with Qatar and you know, oil we think is selling off on concerns that, well, that might mean that Qatar is going to cheat and it's going to unravel the whole deal. And then when you step back and actually dig into the details, you quickly realize that Qatar is the smallest member of OPEC and the cut that they've pledged amounts to a whopping 30,000 barrels per day, which is equivalent to about 20 wells in the Permian. So it just seemed it's a incredibly difficult market to challenge. So we thought the value add would be to review our macro take on oil. We want to go through why we think uh, the market has become as negative as it has or do our best at least to explain that. We're going to review uh, why energy stocks have been falling especially hard and then just give a quick review of how the energy fund is positioned today and why we still see incredibly good upside despite um, you know the headwinds that we're, we seemingly face on a, on a day-to-day basis. I'm going to be referring to uh, the slide presentation that is available to you. Uh, we'll start on slide five and six because we, we try to speak to why the market has become as negative as it has. And if you recall coming into this year, we and I would say most other people were, were pretty positive on oil. And the reasons for that was we had just emerged uh, from an- another year, very strong demand growth. Uh, demand in 2016 was up around 1.7 million barrels per day. And at the same time, we had uh, U.S. production rolling. And importantly, we had a historic deal on the part of OPEC where they pledged to reduce about 1.2 million barrels per day in addition to Russia and some others, amounting to about 1.6. And at the time, you know, the market said, well, OPEC cheats, they always cheat. Um, And yet we thought that the market would be rebalancing and the surplus versus the five-year average we thought would be worked down by uh, September. And we thought the U.S. would uh, be on a normalized basis, on a year-over-year basis, at least by around this time of year. If you look at what's transpired since then, we know that OPEC compliance has been very, very high, around 93 to 97%, depending on the month. So that's well, well ahead, I would say, of anybody, what anybody thought it would be in January. Uh, we believe that demand continues to grow um, healthfully enough. We saw a data point this morning where gasoline demand is up about 1.3, say for the month of March uh, globally. So demand's not an issue, it's been supply. And while we see U.S. supply growing, we think that people are forgetting about the impact of the U.S. or the uh, OPEC production cuts. And the reason why the markets kind of become as negative as they have towards OPEC and, you know, you're hearing more and more headlines about you know, the irrelevance of OPEC and et cetera, is that there was a bit of slippage from what OPEC told us they were cutting in terms of production and what they cut in terms of exports. And we have slides uh, that show the drawdown of uh, OPEC storage on slide 10, where we show that uh, Iran and Saudi both drew down their own inventories, put the barrels onto the market, and they found their way into OECD uh, inventories. Despite that, inventories worldwide have been falling since July of last year, with one exception that was the mo- in the month of January. So the trend continues that the market is undersupplied, but because US inventories didn't draw down as quickly uh, as people would have thought, the market suddenly came to the conclusion that, well, if the OPEC cuts are irrelevant, it must mean that demand is either weak or supply elsewhere in the world is, is growing, neither of which we believe in. 
And what we focus on in slide six is that U.S. crude inventories have now been falling for eight weeks in a row. The drawdowns are increasing in their size. Last week, we had crude inventories fall by 6.4 million barrels per day. I believe that was the biggest drawdown since November of last year. So finally, not only did the cut in OPEC production start is now impacting crude inventories in the U.S., but now the cut in exports is impacting inventories. And we, we really have come to the conclusion that we need U.S. crude inventories to continue to draw, to continue to draw strongly in order for sentiment around oil to improve, because the bearish sentiment is just unbelievable. It's, you, you can tell by how many times CNBC has Dennis Gartman on. He's become a, a daily uh, reporter now for them, and you know, once again recycling a lot of the, the bearish rhetoric that he uh, was using in, in January and February of, of last year, at which point we were down around 36%, similar to what we're down now, and we rallied by 141, 141% from uh, the lows. So let's just review it. U.S. inventories are falling. Uh, we show in slide six that they started their decline several months uh, earlier than what's seasonally normal. Typically, inventories do build both in the U.S. and globally in Q1 because that's the weak point for refinery demand. We just reinforce the idea that that's the only thing that people are looking at. The market's ignoring that OECD inventories, so that's global storage, has been falling since July. We show that on slide eight. On slide nine, we explain again why that is, and that's because while the compliance to the production cuts have been very strong, there was a couple months slippage with exports. Now uh, we have Saudi uh, inventories at a five-year low. We have Iran, Iran that's basically depleted their offshore inventories and the whole floating storage narrative. So we now have a better alignment between the cuts and exports. We have a, a private uh, consultant that we use uh, they can't name, but they're guiding that uh, crude exports, by their estimate, is down 1.7 million barrels per day now. So that's really, really going to chew in to inventories, and we think it's going to occur much stronger and faster than what consensus is, is having you believe with oil falling every uh, bloody day now. So with that said, uh, we still believe that uh, inventories globally are going to normalize by the end of the year. So there's been about a two-month slippage, I would say, from what we had thought due to um, the exports continuing out of OPEC a little stronger than we had thought, but again, that that uh, narrative has changed. Uh, we show two estimates on slide 11 that inventories should reach their their five-year average by anywhere from the end of Q3 to the end of Q4, depending on the estimates that you want to look at, and that'll be, uh, we think, a wildly bullish uh, event. And not only do we have to get there, but it's just once the the uh, visibility of reaching that path becomes a little more clear to the market, we think oil will be responding. We still believe that oil will hit 55 to $60 by the end of the year, despite oil yet again being down today. There are a few lingering worries uh, that we did want to address in slide 12. We outlined them, one of which is clearly U.S. production growth, the belief that U.S. producers have simply gotten too good at what they do. They are unable to lock uh, an abundant amount of supply, have been lowering the cost, but getting more efficient, and it's going to swamp the market and overwhelm any cuts that OPEC has made. We're going to talk to that. Secondly is anytime oil falls, you suddenly see new articles talking about weak demand, which is is 100% incorrect, but we'll just walk through that. Uh, thirdly, we're going to address uh, electric vehicles. Uh, once again, you know we're in a negative market, so you look for negative data points, one of which is Tesla, of course, and the growth of electric vehicles. and and you know, Stanford professors that are saying that no one's going to be buying an, an internal combustion engine uh, by 2025 and such, and that's just feeding yet again into the negative psychology. We'll touch on the, the actual reality behind that. 
And then finally, the, there's some modest concerns about sales from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and what the impact of that would be. So we're just going to address uh, those fairly quickly. Slides 13 uh, and 14, we speak to the United States. They are the swing producer globally. We've been saying that for over a year. It should be obvious that as the rig count has more than doubled from the low, that U.S. production isn't back in growth mode. We had said that the magic line for the rig count would be about 600. The rig count now is uh, in the mid-700s. So we would expect that U.S. production will grow this year by about three to 400,000 barrels per day and grow next year by about 1 to 1.2 million barrels per day. The importance of that, though, is that the U.S. is not big enough to meet global demand and growth offs and offset global declines that we're seeing elsewhere in the world. And when you look at U.S. tight oil production, you're really talking about three key basins, which make up about 5% of global production. When you look at the other 95% in aggregate, we think that it's basically going to be flat to down. And yet, nobody wants to focus on that, of course. You just want to focus on, on the United States. So we're going to walk through, basically, where we think U.S. tight oil fits into the global uh, picture. Slide 14, we just show the rate count is up. Slide 15, we speak to that the U.S. was growing oil production by about a million barrels per day per year in 2012, 13, 14. It flatlined in 15. It was down in 16. Uh, we expect it to be back in growth mode. The largest reason why that was occurring was not due to technology and better efficiencies. It was due to the oil price. And we show that in both 2012, 13, and 14, when the U.S. was growing by a million barrels per day, the oil price was over $90. So companies simply had more access to cash or cash flow to redeploy into the field, drill a lot of wells, and grow oil production. The rig count used to be at 1,606, and now it's you know around 740. Companies have gotten more efficient, but they haven't gotten that efficient to be able to make up for the, um, the offset in um, the rig count. So it was really just a function of availability of cash flow. What the market's kind of um, grasping now is what we show on slide 16 is, yes, there has been a, a lowering in the break-evens. So this is on a single well. Due to you know, efficiency gains for one, companies are getting better, meaning they're, they're able to isolate the better portion of the rock. They're able to keep the drill bit in that better portion of the rock for longer. They're drilling longer. They're fracking more. They're using more sand, which are two underlying themes which we have big, big exposure to. But the biggest uh, reason why break-evens have fallen is because as oil price collapsed, so too did the pricing power of service companies. The, what it cost to drill a well for, fell by 40%. The cost to frack a well fell by 50%. The cost of sand fell by over 50%. So those cost savings really uh, flowed through to a lowering of that break-even. We are now, despite being at $47 oil, at about a $50 oil price, we're at the point where demand for services exceeds available supply, and we're seeing extraordinarily strong increases in prices. Leading edge uh, frac pricing now is up 70% from where it was in uh, October lows. The price of sand is up more than 100% in certain areas. So while these companies benefit in 2016, we think, and we're showing um, one slide from Reistad now, they think that by exiting this year, when you account for the increase in inflation in, in service companies, that the break-even's back up to the mid-50s. And as I mentioned, too, at $47 oil, while companies are benefiting from some hedges this year, the U.S. industry is about 36% hedged. Next year, the last estimate I saw was only 8 So companies are fully exposed or naked to a $47 oil price. And given service costs, inflation, 
there's not enough available cash flow to drill enough wells to be able to grow at the same extent that consensus would have you believe uh, right now. Slide 18 is just one quick slide too. Another fallacy that people assume is that all shale is equal. This is a graphic of the Williston Basin. So this is the Bakken play, one of the big three in the US. And it's interesting because what we show and what we plagiarize from where we see is that the sweet spot, which is the area that US companies have been drilling for the past year to two years during the bear market for oil, is very small. Um, you know, eyeballing, it's probably five, five-ish percent of the entire play. And yet, when companies announce, you know, well results, they don't, you know, if they drill 10 wells in a quarter, they only talk to one or two. And I can assure you, it's not their one or two crappy wells, it's their very best wells that they're drilling in the sweet spot. So, as companies deplete the very best rock, because that's all that they've been drilling, you drill a poor quality rock, you get poorer results, you need a higher oil price. So, we think there's a few years left of this high grading, after which time, companies will be forced to go into poor quality rocks. That's really going to further increase the, the overall supply cost. Just slide 19, lastly, on, on um, US and where that fits into the global picture. If you remove OPEC and you remove the United States, production globally has been flat for the past several years, and it's likely to be flat going forward as companies haven't been making enough investments to, to uh, drill enough and put in pressure maintenance, et cetera, and be able to offset declines. So, you know, one example I read this morning is Brazil. Brazil pr production has been falling for four months in a row now. You know, China, China was the story last year in terms of production. They're the fourth largest non-OPEC producer. Production last year was down about 15 or 16 percent. So production globally is very challenged. And yet, you know, we only hear about U.S. shale and the very best acreage and the three very best plays, which account for 5% of global production. The market is completely ignoring the other 95%. Uh, percent. Slide 20, we only have one slide on, on Tesla. It's become more topical as oil is falling. Um, you know, in a few articles talking about how, you know, oil is going to become obsolete because we're all just going to drive electric vehicles. There are two, there's a battle here. So one was on the left-hand side of the chart, a Stanford uh, professor that made a splashy headline saying that you know, no one's going to drive uh, existing vehicles by 2025. And then on the right, we tried to be a little more pragmatic and give you two forecasts. One is from BP, so you could say, okay, well, that's fine, they're, they're biased. The one below is from Morgan Stanley and just came out a week ago, and it's the most uh, timely uh, estimate that we've seen in terms of while no doubt the traction of electric vehicles is going to increase, their estimate by 2040, so take that with a gigantic grain of salt, but they're saying uh, electric vehicles will be 40% of auto sales by 2040. Between now and then, given population growth globally and economic growth globally, that the demand for travel, meaning you know miles driven by cars or light passenger trucks, will more than outweigh the erosion in uh, car cars going from what we drive now to electric vehicles. So their, their estimate was that gasoline demand will continue to grow till about 2032-2033. And if I do my job correctly from here, my hope is none of us have to worry about what's happening in 2032 and 2033. So this belief that everyone's going to be driving a Tesla tomorrow, people forget the math. So there are 80 million cars sold globally a year. Average useful life is eight years. That's a 640 million install base. And electric cars, according to the EIA, just in the US at least, will be 1.4 million. Uh, by 2025. So let's even say it's 2020. Again, okay, three years, 
uh, you're looking at a more about a you know let's say 550 600 year replacement cycle to offset the, the base so this concern that it's impacting oil today may be a little overstated uh, lastly on on uh, demand slide 21 you know anytime the oil is falling you occasionally see a headline well it must be about weak global demand that is is incorrect we show that demand has grown every year in modern history outside of Q1 2009 when we were all going through the great uh, global recession. So demand is growing healthfully this year at estimates up 1.3 million. Importantly, it's, it's spread around the world. It's not just one area like China. It's now we have areas like uh, India, even the United States uh, with gasoline demand. Uh, the last number we saw was up about one, one and a half ish percent year over year. So demand's not the issue. It's been the perception about too much supply growth and we hope we've addressed that. Lastly, and then I'll get into um, uh, a more longer dated reason why we think we're in a multi-year bull market for oil. On slide 22, when Trump announced their, their budget draft, part of it included the sale of half of their strategic petroleum reserve to raise funds to offset a lot of the tax cuts. It amounted to about 300 million barrels, which happens to be the glut versus the five-year average globally right now, and oil sold off. And it's another example of just how bearish the market is, because when you actually dug into the details, what you would realize is that it's, it would be, this is assumes that it even passes, which it, it's apparently not even likely, but forget that. The ramp isn't going to be occurring really until 2021. And even at that point, it amounts to a whopping 0.0% of global demand. And yet oil fell you know, on the day that this was announced. So it just speaks to how um, you know, in a, in a, we're in this negative feedback loop where People want to be negative. They're grasping on every negative headline that they can. And we just need a little bit more time for U.S. inventories to work their way down in order to change that uh, storyline. Uh, lastly, we're just going to finish off on something that we've touched on in the past with a few updated slides. And that is we remain in a multi-year bull market for oil, despite the pullback that we've had temporarily uh, this year with oil down about 11%. And the reason for that is that outside of North America, companies drill long lead projects that require many years and four to six years to bring on a project and a lot of money, like multi-billion dollar projects. And with the collapse of oil, their ability to finance these projects collapsed as well. And industry went through the biggest sell or the biggest drop in reinvestment in its history in 2014, 15, 16, and perhaps 2017. So in slide 23, we show the impact of that. And that means that due to the long lead nature, it wasn't impacting production in the moment, given that four to six year lag, it really starts biting in 2018, 19, 20, and 21. And the amount of new barrels coming from these projects falls by 40%. And this is pretty much set in stone, given that even if you were the CEO of Exxon today and you wanted to pick up, you know, you pick up the phone to one of your teams and say, okay, I, I sanctioned the project, given that long lead nature, you know, it's gonna take you four to six years. So this trend, is staring at us right in the face and yet because we have to worry about you know is is Qatar going to bring on their 30,000 barrels per day of what they cut from the the, the agreement uh, people are ignoring this for now at least we also highlight on slide 24 how due to that lack of investment the rate of new discoveries has been have been uh, falling the number of project sanctionings has been falling as well slide 25 we speak to how the depletion rate has been escalating as well so this isn't the decline rate this is how much of your known resource you're actually using and in some areas it's above 20 percent so in five years theoretically you would have depleted the resource because there just hasn't been uh, enough investment in by the industry and this isn't a five or ten year call this is going to be biting by the end of next year 
Slide 26, we've shown you this before. It's not just us saying this, but now we, we had Total say that they thought there could be a five to 10 million barrel per day under supply by 2020. Slide 27, we show a Wall Street Journal article in April, just that this is starting slowly, like too slowly, but slowly becoming more headline news. So just to summarize, the reason why the market has become so negative on oil, we think, is that there was slippage between production cuts and export cuts on the part of OPEC. And that was a strategic blunder on their part. And it led people to conclude that the agreement that was put into place um, had no impact on the oil market, and it must mean that supply is growing or demand is weak. We believe that, and we have two weeks under our belt here. Like We had a massive draw last week, and we think that trend will continue. Um, we believe that as U.S. inventories continue to draw and continue to uh, drop faster than consensus, we think uh, at the end, as of Wednesday of this week, we could be at a point where we have less oil in storage on a year-over-year -year basis in the United States. So our estimate on that wasn't uh, too far off. We think that will help to turn what we think is the worst sentiment that we've ever experienced in 14 years. And a lot of our, our friends and colleagues who run energy books would, would echo that um, as well. Too much focus is being placed on the wrong things. Too much focus is being placed on only 5% of global production when the other 95 is is, is flat to, to falling, where OPEC is out of capacity and where demand is growing very, very healthily. So with that said, let me just touch on how we remain positioned in the fund, why we remain invested, uh, why I have the confidence to personally be buying more. I bought more of the fund uh, last week. I believe I'm the largest individual investor in it. And while I'm down this year along with you, and it's a sickening feeling on, on Sundays because it feels like things continue to fall every day, we remain very confident about our themes and about our company. So I'm going to walk you through uh, what those are. We have, and we were pretty public about this, we shifted our geographical focus to the United States from Canada. We just felt that there was too much political headwinds from provincial governments, federal governments, lack of pipeline capacity, etc. And we didn't want to be right on oil and be wrong on the stock. So we're focused on the U.S. We've got about 80% exposure. We've hedged off three quarters of our foreign currency impact at a very, very modest cost. I think it's costing us about 1.2% a year to, to accomplish that just to eliminate one more variable that I have to worry about. And we've taken a very large focus or uh, bet on the service sector. And I'm going to walk through why. Of the services, we've isolated the two areas that are experiencing the greatest degree of price increases as we speak, even though oil is falling. I'm flying to New York uh, in a couple hours. I'm meeting with about half of the fund over the next two days at a conference, and I expect to hear that demand for their services continues to be very strong, that they're continuing to push through uh, greater price increases, and I'll, I'll walk through that. But I, I do want to uh, point out, and we've written in our monthly commentaries, which I would encourage you to read, Beginning in about February, March, April, uh, we increased the overall beta of the fund by going into the service sector. And we, we admitted that if we were wrong temporarily on oil, it would in the short term impact our performance. And that is what has happened. The average energy fund's down about 15, 20% this year, we're down 35. And it's been by design by trying to be in those companies that we think will benefit the greatest when oil one magical day stops falling and starts to incline. We, we, we think we're very, very, very close to that point. And what has hurt us on the downside will greatly assist us on the upside. So the, the fund has a beta of about 148% because service names typically are a little more volatile than a pipeline company or uh, versus, versus Suncor or, or a large cap. Slide 30, we just talk about 
you know, sentiment today is what we think the worst ever in 14 years. Uh, compounding why energy stocks have been so weak is there's essentially a buyer strike. And there's a buyer strike because this is a unique time period where energy is massively underperforming every other sector in the United States. And if you think about generalist money, which are the guys who command the, the majority of investable capital, they're enjoying record gains, record highs in the market, tech stocks are rocking. And for them to take money out of one of those sectors and put it into energy, which has been falling, it's kind of a tough bet for them to make. They need to see at least stabilization in oil. So there's been a buyer strike, and you can see that on very weak volumes. Um, you know, we're, we're holding this call at uh, 10.30 on Monday morning. Within the first half hour, we, there are some stocks that have traded like five or 10,000 shares. So there's just a buyer strike. And at the same time over the past two months, as energy has fallen more sharply than I think most people would have thought, it's been taking some casualties uh, in the form of uh, some U.S. hedge funds, which have wound down uh, certain energy pods or just decrease their exposure. And our last number is there were seven different energy funds or pods in the states that have wound down or been liquidated. So that was about $10 billion of selling in what was already a very weak tape with very poor liquidity. So it's just been weakness has been be, been feeding on more uh, weakness. So that hasn't been exactly helping in, in the short term. We show in slides 31 and 32 there's just been this massive underperformance of the stocks versus oil. So on slide 31, we show uh, Canadian stocks like a Crescent Point lower today than when oil was at $26. Cardinal is the same, same case. Some stocks falling you know, 30 to 40% uh, year to date in the first five months of the year while oil is down about 10-ish you know, percent. The same is true in the service sector on the slide 32 with uh, despite good fundamentals, which we'll walk through, some stocks falling as much as 60%. So it's been an incredibly uh, difficult year so far to, to navigate. So I'm just going to finish off on two uh, key themes, or three key themes that we're invested in. One is frac sand. There happens to be an article in the Financial Post today on it that I, I would encourage you to read. We've, we've written about this in our past month, couple monthly updates. These stocks have been really volatile, meaning really just down to the downside of the past couple months despite what we think is a very, very strong backdrop. So every single well drilled today pretty much is fracture stimulated. And when you frack a well, it's, you're creating cracks in the rock. You need to put something into those cracks, otherwise they'll just collapse onto themselves. So the companies use frac sand. And frac sand is a very special type of sand that has different characteristics, which I won't bore you with. The demand for that product is 75 million tons this year. We think that is going to grow to over 100 million tons next year growing to about 130 to 140 million tons in 2019. So very strong underlying demand for this product. The cost of the sand relative to the overall well cost is, is very, very small. So the pricing sensitivity of an oil and gas company to an increase in the price of sand is pretty modest. And yet the stocks have fallen because there's a new storyline and that is there's going to be uh, increase in supply available in Texas, which historically has not been a supplier of frac sand. And yet when you look through, we've spent uh, more time than we ever thought we could on what most people would probably think a boring topic. When you look at all potential supply growth for frac sand in the United States, total deposits that are likely to come on with you know, geological attributes that would make it potentially economic at today's uh, gas or sand price or higher, amounts to about 40 million tons. And yet we walk through where we think demand is going to grow by 65 million tons. So the market we think is tight and will remain tight even if all of these projects come online. 
what gives us further confidence about that is that oil and gas companies are approaching these sand companies and saying that they will fully finance expansions of projects that are operating today because most projects of the better quality sand are completely sold out. They're without a lot of resistance passing through very, very substantial price increases. And the, the margin sensitivity of these companies is, is huge. So for every $5 change in sand price, the cash flow of these companies grows by about 30%. And we've already seen uh, prices go from about $25, leading edge now we're in the high 40s to 50. So you can appreciate how much sensitivity that these companies have on EBITDA and what they should be continuing to post record after record after record quarter. But service stocks are higher volatile, uh, or pretty volatile. And these have been especially uh, sold off on this concern about too much supply, which we completely don't agree with. And I could show you five different reports from Morgan Stanley, Tudor Pickering, Cowan, Piper, Goldman Sachs, and a few others that would all uh, corroborate what I'm saying. So it's we have uh, uh, about 35% weight in this theme, and we feel very good about it, even though uh, it's really hurt us over the past couple of months because the stocks have been very, very weak. Uh, theme two is pressure pumping. So we have about a 40-ish percent weighting in uh, this theme. These companies are doing phenomenally well, even though the stocks are not. Uh, leading edge pricing, and so this is as of last week from a, a company that I'll be meeting with uh, tomorrow, I believe. Uh, pricing is now up 70%, kind of leading edge. And these companies renegotiate their contracts very, very actively. So uh, you, you'll start to see that strong pricing in their numbers. That is far greater than what consensus would have you believe. You know, consensus now thinks that we're, you know, we're, we're falling back to $40 oil or something, and you know, these companies are going to lose their pricing power. Right now, equipment is completely sold out. Uh, yet again, companies are trying to put more uh, equipment to work. They're running into significant labor issues. You simply can't hire enough people uh, quickly enough, and the companies are getting very strong. Um, read-throughs from their, their customers that the demand will remain uh, very, very, very strong. The stocks have been very weak. Uh, we have some trading uh, below four times EV to EBITDA on, on a 2018 basis. These companies typically trade at a mid-cycle value of seven. So we see 50 to 100% upside in several of our names. So we, we feel very good uh, about those. And, and actually, encouragingly, uh, today with oil down uh, yet again, you know, down 50 cents, we've got a couple of our pumpers that are actually up today. So we, we've been seeing some, some positive divergence uh, in recent days. The last theme that uh, we'll touch on, because we're coming up uh, on 30 minutes on this update, is US EMP. And we made the decision earlier this year that there were just too much headwinds in Canada. We've, we, as a country, have shot ourselves in the foot one too many times. Capital has, has been fleeing. You're seeing every major with any major project in Canada sell. I think we've had five large oil sands we just had a conventional producer, uh, Apache, sell their acreage. Like, everybody's f fleeing. And they've been fleeing because of uh, socialist governments in Alberta and British Columbia. They're fleeing because we have a prime minister who's been talking about how we need to you know, shut down or wind down or phase out the oil sands. They're fleeing because, as a country, we can't build pipelines to either ocean. And we sell 95 or 99% of our product to a single customer whose demand is falling because their own growth, their own production is growing. So we're in a tough position. What we also find attractive in the U.S. and it's an area that we've been following for probably five years, is that in certain plays, in certain core of the plays, if you can isolate those, the rock is simply better. It allows for really, really uh, 
uh, productive wells relative to the well cost. And there are other negatives that somewhat offset that in terms of higher uh, royalties and higher declines and such. But from our modeling, we think that U.S. companies in the right uh, zip codes can grow faster. And that's what people want. People pay up for that. So we looked at the average Canadian uh, mid-cap oil company growing 9% next year, trading at about five and a half times. We have three U.S. holdings. They're going to grow by 49%, and they're trading at only about a one multiple uh, premium, which we think is very much uh, deserved. So we have found very good opportunities in, in U.S. EMP. We do think the very best way to benefit from that production growth is buying the service companies that service them, because you, you do need to drill wells and frack wells and put sand in those fracks, et cetera. And every company we speak to is talking about uh, record demand. Pressure pumping in Canada, as an example, this Q2, our, our TriCan, which is a highly significant waiting force, we think is going to post a record Q2. So that's a common theme that the market's just simply ignoring. So just to wrap up, it's been a really tough year uh, so far. We think there are parallels between this year and last where we felt like we were the only bulls on the planet. We, uh, we were down about 34%. We wrote about how we made the decision to be fully invested. We believed in the themes. We believed in the companies. And our patience was rewarded in that we rallied by 141% from the lows. Today, sentiment is dismal. Stocks are for sale. There's a buyer strike. And yet when we step back, we think the fundamentals for oil are a lot stronger than when consensus would have you believe. We have stocks that are, have fallen by 40, 50, 60% year to date who have strong balance sheets. And when you meet with them, they tell you that they have record demand for their products. They're completely sold out. Um, etc. So we just think there's this massive divergence between perception and reality and at some point that is going to um, converge. And we think it's going to converge with the continuation of large drawdowns from U.S. soil inventories. We already have eight weeks in our, uh, under our belt. That trend is escalating as draws are getting bigger as we've entered into the, the driving season and refineries are, have come back online. So we think that trend will continue. So we're seeing incredibly attractive opportunities as everyone else is puking these stocks out. Uh, we remain extremely committed to the fund. We, I think I'm the biggest investor, uh, individual investor in it. We've been buying more recently and we're doing our best to, to uh, ride through this epic uh, negative uh, sentiment and see the upside. So I appreciate your time. I would encourage you to reach out uh, to me if we haven't been clear enough in what we believe in on this 30-minute uh, update. We are extremely uh, accessible uh, by email or phone, um, et cetera. So thank you for your time. Thanks for your investment. And we, we think there are better days uh, ahead for the fund. We, we do not think there is a justification for the degree of pessimism uh, in the oil market today.